Amen. Amen. This week, we ought to be amazed. Thank you, brother. Aaron's had a tough time with these kids. His son Sterling's not feeling well, and Laura's at home with uh, Sterling. So he's wrangling kids' choir, his own kids, and all of this stuff, too. So then I called an audible and didn't tell him about it. So uh, <laughs> he loves it when I do that. <laughs> uh, thankful for Aaron and, and the choir reminding us that amazing love expressed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, if, if you're not compelled by that amazing love, then you don't get it. Then you, you may not be a Christian. If you're not compelled by the amazing love that God demonstrated for us that you will hear about this week over and over, if that love is not amazing to you, my prayer is that this week it would become amazing to you, that you would find God's love for you and for me and for the world so amazing that you would be moved to worship and inspired this week, the most important week of the church's life. Over a year ago, I, I used a phrase in a sermon that I probably shouldn't have used because I got some, some feedback. More than once I've used a phrase that I shouldn't have used in a sermon. But I got some feedback uh, after the service about this, this phrase, and I went and, and I had to remind myself what it was. I looked it up. Uh, it was Isaiah chapter 1, where the prophet calls out God's people and calls them, the, they're like the leaders of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and it's very shocking language because Sodom and Gomorrah were known as, you know, cesspools. They were just a, a gross den of iniquity. And, and Isaiah is saying to the leaders in Judah that you're no different than the, the leaders of Sodom and Gomorrah. And I said that, that that, you know, kind of talk in our context today would probably induce a lot of pearl clutching pearl clutching, and, and I had Carlton Carter stop me and say, what is that? I've never heard pearl clutching before. So I went and looked it up on the internets, and the internets say that pearl clutching is outrage or dramatic protest, especially from a woman, caused by something the person perceives as vulgar, in bad taste, or morally wrong, but doesn't necessarily elicit a similarly strong reaction from most other people. And my point in using that particular phrase was to show how offended God's people would be that Isaiah was accusing them of behaving like these pagan people from Sodom and Gomorrah. And today, our text may as well induce some amount of pearl clutching. The Apostle Paul wants to show us how scandalous the reality of the cross was and is and always ought to be in the context that it finds itself in. I think that especially, you know, here in the Bible Belt, it's easy to lose sight of, of what a radical concept the gospel is, of how shocking, how bizarre, how utterly backwards Christianity appears to most people in the world. It was scandalous when Jesus the purported king of the Jews came riding into Jerusalem, the holy city, on a donkey, not just a donkey, but the cult of a donkey. 
Instead of a, a war horse coming with a sword to overthrow the Roman government and establish the nation of Israel as the dominant people in the world, he came in on a baby donkey. And still the people waved palm branches and shouted, Hosanna, which we think of Hosanna as like, oh, it's a, a word of praise, but it, it, it's a cry for help. Hosanna means save us, save us. Long had they lived under the oppression of Roman rule, and yet what they needed salvation from was far more nefarious than the Romans. They lived under the chains of sin, and no matter how many lambs, no matter how many oxen, no matter how many doves that they sacrificed, it never was enough to atone for the sins of the people. They quoted from Psalm 118, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That was a messianic prayer. It was a prayer of blessing over the rescuer, over the Messiah who was to come and set them free. But the scandal of a little donkey was nothing compared to what Jesus would do and say in Jerusalem throughout the course of that week. First, he went to the temple on Monday and, and turned over the tables of all the, the money changers who had set up shop in what was a very lucrative industry in, in exchanging foreign currency to, to poor pilgrims who had come there to worship. He chased them out with righteous anger. I was telling Isaiah, it's okay to be angry. Jesus got angry. It's how you deal with that anger that matters. And he, he chased them all out and cleansed the temple, which was to be a house of prayer for all people. Then on Tuesday, he told the religious people, the people who thought they were right with God, he told them that the tax collectors and the prostitutes were entering the kingdom ahead of them. He managed to step on everyone's toes, pretty much. <laughs> then he quoted from Psalm 118 again, the same psalm that they were saying to him as he came in, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He said, don't you remember the rest of that psalm? The part that says the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? That's me. You guys are going to reject me, but I'm the key to the whole thing. He called the Pharisees a bunch of hypocrites, brood of vipers, whitewashed tombs, nice looking on the outside, but full of dead bones on the inside. He said the temple itself would be destroyed. All these huge stones would soon be thrown down among them. The scandal of all his teaching was simply too much. And by Thursday, the Jewish authorities had convinced the powers that be that this guy has got to be stopped. They're going to convince the leaders of Jerusalem to, to plot together to set Jesus up for a sham trial and for a brutal Roman execution. And as we approach Good Friday, I think it's, it's crucial for us to understand what it means that God died. He really died, that the literal heart of Jesus stopped, that there was no air in his lungs, that his blood stopped flowing. And he died in the most simultaneously humiliating and most excruciating way to die possible. The, the brutal invention of the Romans of crucifixion. It was scandalous. It remains a scandal to the world today. And the definition of scandalous is very similar to the de definition of pearl clutching. The interwebs say that scandalous means causing general public outrage by a perceived offense against morality or law. 
And for us here in the South, to be part of a scandal is anathema. It goes against our refined Southern sensibilities, right? As parents, we love for our children uh, to be able to go out in public with us as a family and not do what we did last night, which is drag one of them out. Uh, when I took one of them, I won't say who, to get their hair cut recently, uh, a couple weeks ago, the, the sweet lady cutting his hair said, how old are you? And he said, five. And she said, well, I'm six. And he said, no, you're not. You're like 99. <laughs> I, like, I gave her a really good tip. Uh, the lady, again, it's, I'm not purposely trying to offend anyone today. And God doesn't come to offend. That's not his intention. His intention is to love. And in doing so, speaking the truth in love, it can be incredibly shocking. It can be scandalous. It can be offensive to us. But my hope is that we can embrace the shocking reality of the gospel and that we can then boldly join in the scandal of a king on a donkey who would soon be killed on a cross. So I've called our outline for today the scandalous life because we are called to follow a scandalous Messiah and believe in a scandalous gospel which leads to a scandalous life that you and I are to live, which displays the power of God. It's a very countercultural, upside down type of life. Remember, part of the problem with this little church in Corinth is that they didn't know what it meant to live holy lives, set apart lives, consecrated lives as the holy people of God. The Bible tells us as God is holy, we are to be holy. They didn't take holiness seriously. They didn't take sin seriously. They thought they could continue to sin and that God's grace would abound. They didn't have Romans chapter 6, I guess, at that point. They didn't know what it looked like to be different from the world in order to make a difference in the world. And on that night that Jesus was betrayed, he told his disciples that they were not of the world, but they were sent into the world as he was sent into the world. But the great temptation for many churches is to go one of two directions, both of which are wrong. Okay, the, the gospel does neither of these things. Once they're sent into the world, the church either disengages from it or they assimilate to it. They disengage from it or they assimilate to it. But the gospel does neither of those. The gospel calls us to go into the world, not to retreat from it, not to hide our heads in the sand, but it also calls us to live boldly in this world as ambassadors of another world, the kingdom of God. And that tension causes us to live sort of a, a scandalous life in the world. It's, it's backwards from what the prevailing culture is selling. And when we do this with faithfulness, we show the world the goodness, the greatness of God himself. I want to be the kind of church that people look at and they say, that's what God is like. And I think that what we see in our text for today, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 2, verse 5, are three ways that the scandal of the gospel shapes our lives. First off, we have a Messiah who was crucified. That's point number one. Think about it. Our, our culture values winners. Nice guys finish last. Win at all costs. 
I often hear people quoting uh, Vince Lombardi, the great Green Bay Packers coach. You probably know the quote. Winning isn't everything, it's the only thing, right? And we get so obsessed. I'm competitive, I love to win. But our culture is so obsessed with, with winners. People quote that Vince Lombardi quote as if that's a healthy way to live. Having nothing else to live for other than winning. As if that's a good thing that we should aspire to. That's, that's not a healthy way to live, if, in case you thought it was. But we claim a Lord and Savior who was put on trial and lost the trial. He did not call down an angel, of, uh, uh, angel army to stop the, the, the execution. Why do we follow this guy then? Why do we submit our lives completely to the authority of a first century, self-taught, homeless rabbi from a backwater town who only had 12 real followers and one of them wanted to kill him. That's what the Corinthian culture was saying. And that's what many in our culture still say today. Look at verse 18. I've heard a sermon on this verse that was just so good. I wish we could spend you know, a month in this verse. For the word of the cross is folly, foolishness, to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Mm, that's such a rich verse, isn't it? People who are lost don't get it. All the worldly wisdom that one can attain, all the degrees, all the certification, all the training, all the books, none of it helps them to see the truth, to see the reality, to see the gospel for what it really is. It's not some insider knowledge. It's not a secret handshake. It's not even the wisdom of God. What does it say? It's the power of God. It's efficacious. It does something. The word in Greek is dunamis for power. I love that. That's where we get our word dynamite. The power of God blows up the strongholds of sin that formerly held us captive and condemned us to die. Jesus took all our sin, all of our shame upon his own shoulders when he died. That penalty no longer applied to us. The gospel isn't a doctrine to know. It's not good advice to follow and to kind of live your life by. It doesn't even tell us about God's power. It is God's power. Then Paul goes on to point out the implications of the scandal of the cross. It goes against all of our cultural sensitivities. Start in verse 19. Paul's quoting from Isaiah chapter 29. It's not a new concept that he's bringing up here. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. The Corinthians were Greeks, right? They were cosmopolitan Greeks. They practically invented government. They invented theater as we know it. Uh, they invented philosophy. They were so proud as a, a nation of how they were not like the barbarians of the other nations uh, around them, of how civilized and excellently intellectual they were. They had famous rhetoricians who would come into these cities and they would host these big debates. It was kind of an intellectual sport of, I'll show you in this debate. And people would pay money to watch people argue uh, these intellectual points. 
It, it, you know, it wasn't something that we necessarily see today, but the pride of intellectualism we definitely do see today. Paul's calling out their pride. Look at verses 20 to 22. Where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe, the lawyer? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? You know, we, my kids and I have started watching Jeopardy. My mom loves Jeopardy. We started watching it some. And there's some really smart people who know lots of stuff. But the, the wisdom of people is nothing to God. No one is wise in God's eyes. Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It's not an intellectual agreement. It's a heart issue. Verse 22, for Jews demand signs and Greek, Greeks seek wisdom. This means that when it came to you know, spiritual searching, looking for what matters most in life, the Jews wanted miracles. They wanted proof of God's power. They wanted to see God's power in action. But the Greeks wanted wisdom. They wanted to be smarter than everyone else. To the Jews, the word of the cross was, was weakness. It wasn't a sign of God's power. It was a sign of failure. And to the Greeks, the word of the cross was a waste of time. It wasn't useful in arguments. It wasn't useful in winning debates and sounding smart. But Paul is, is doubling down. He's determined to continue preaching the same pure, unadulterated gospel message as the ultimate truth as the ultimate way to live and to flourish as God would have us to. Look at verse 23. He's, he's basically saying, look, I know it's scandalous. I know it offends everyone, but, verse 23, he says, but we, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles like us. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is still wiser than men and the weakness of God is still stronger than men. And this is really cool. Do you know what the Greek word is for stumbling block? I didn't know this when I titled the sermon, but it's scandalon. It's a scandal is what he's saying. It's a stumbling block. It's just a scandal that offends people and causes them to trip up over it. And Paul, again, is doubling down on the offensive word of the cross. It's scandalous to everyone, Jews and Gentiles, to all people who are not yet part of the people of God. Paul mentions the words power, that dynamite power, and wisdom about 20 times, starting in verse 18 through the end of chapter 2. He's, he's going for the very foundation of the worldly culture that tries to sell us on some less than version of the good life that actually leads to disaster. He's going after people's hearts. He's asking us to re-examine what we're chasing after in this life. This is really important because we chase what we love and we resemble what we chase. We chase what we love, and we resemble what we chase. Do we really believe that a crucified Messiah is the key, the cornerstone for unlocking God's good plan 
to, to save us and to save this world and to make all things new. It's a scandalous idea, and yet the cross is the very power and wisdom of God in saving sinners and in fixing our world. If we really believe that, then we, the, the gospel-believing church, are going to seem increasingly strange in a world that sees the cross as scandalous. That brings us to point number two. In this section, the next section, we're going to see the scandal of, quote, unsuccessful. I didn't put quotes here, but hear me out. Unsuccessful Christians. If we don't chase after, primarily, if we don't chase after the things that the world ch tells us to chase after, then we will probably be unsuccessful according to the world's standards. Christians are not called to be impressive people. I love what Evan tells our youth all the time. You can be impressive or you can be known, but you can't be both. You can be impressive or you can be known, but you can't be both. We're called to die to ourselves. Look at verses 26 and 27. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Thank God that he uses fools like me and you. Sometimes in staff meeting we'll be having some, you know, deep theological conversation and we're referencing books we've read or theologians that we've read or something. And, and Ron Landis, our facility director, who for 25 years was a GM mechanic, he'll say, now I, I haven't had the training you guys have had, I haven't read those books, but you know, it seems to me that, and he'll come up with some beautifully rich, theologically true, robustly orthodox thing. And we're like, yes, that, that's amazing, Ron. All the training, all the books, none of that stuff matters if you understand the gospel in your heart. A, a couple of times, Lil, we were reading something, and I was trying to, to get them to see a point, and, and Lil said, oh, it's this. And she said this thing that was exactly, almost word for word, what I'd read in a book that was written by a guy who has a PhD from Cambridge. And Lil said almost the exact same thing that he came up with. It's amazing how God... Holy Spirit in us brings about these things. When we interviewed potential music ministers, you know, there were a lot of uh, excellent uh, performers who applied for, for this position. And Aaron came, Aaron came in with a very different attitude. He was actually looking to serve a church, not to be served by a church. He was ready to get to work on leading us to the throne in a healthy, authentic way. And I'm so grateful that we didn't hire a performer for our music minister position. That's not what God's looking for. And now hear me, you may happen to be very successful. You may be very attractive. You may be a very impressive person. I'm not saying that's bad, okay? That's not a sinful thing in itself. Thank God we need people in leadership who are successful, who are impressive, but that's not the point. That's not what they're chasing after. God uses faithful believers who find themselves in places of power and affluence and influence, but he seems to prefer exalting low people like a teenage girl in Nazareth named Mary or a prostitute named Rahab 
or a group of Hebrew school dropouts who are now fishermen in order to feed their families. Look at verse 28. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why does God do this? Verse 29. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. How foolish would that be? <laughs> It'd be too easy for God just to use the, the rich and the powerful because they would probably get most of the credit. Most of the glory would go to them instead of where that glory is due, the high and holy God. Then Paul moves from the, the outward work of unsuccessful Christians to the inner work among these kinds of people who don't aspire to anything other than knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection. Yes, these unsuccessful Christians do amazing things in the world to show how awesome God is. And they relate to each other in a, a pretty amazing way too. Look at verses 30 and 31. Because of God's plan, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. He's saying God's wisdom is his plan, is his, his plan to make a family for himself, to bless them, and then through them, to bless all people. And because of that perfect plan and power, you who are Christians are in Christ. That's a term that Paul uses a lot in his letters to describe the special relationship that we have with God now through Jesus Christ our Lord. But it also means not only were we reconciled to God through the cross, it means we were reconciled to one another. That we share a bond now that's closer than kin. We are the family of God now, and that matters greatly. We have a special relationship with Jesus and a special relationship with one another. And that relationship with Jesus is a saving relationship. The three uh, terms that he uses here, righteousness. First off, our righteousness is our justification. It's a right standing before God. We're made right. When God sees us, he sees us as right. He's our sanctification. That's the force that's making us more and more like him each day as we grow in grace and knowledge of him. And finally, he's our redemption, the one who will one day bring us back fully to himself. I had the privilege to be part of, of four funeral services, many of you did too, over the past two weeks where we celebrated that for people who actually believe that Jesus justifies us, sanctifies us, and ultimately will redeem us, death is simply a transition from this earthly life into a glorious new life with the Lord. That changes how we view life together as church too, right? I had a great lunch meeting with Jared, our, our deacon chair, and Valerie, our, our vice chair, who prayed that gospel-rich prayer earlier. And, and Valerie mentioned a book about driving that made this point that you go where you're looking, that you, you look where you're heading and you go where you're looking. We have to keep our focus on the gospel. We have to make sure the cross is at the center of all we do. We have to keep our focus on the Lord and the things of the Lord so that we don't get bogged down with the things of this world. Valerie quoted what Lil often says, we have to major on the majors. 
And that leads to our last point. Paul was so completely unlike the traveling orators of that day. He wasn't trying to impress people with his fancy speeches or highfalutin theology. He wasn't trying to win arguments. He was trying to win souls. But it was a scandal of a simplified ministry. It's very scaled back ministry. Ooh, this is maybe changing how we do things at Woodmont. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. That's a big shift from the guy who was breathing out murderous threats back in Acts chapter 7 and 9. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of God, but in the power of God. A phrase you'll probably hear me say a bunch, what you win them with is what you win them to. If people come to Woodmont Baptist Church because they say, Nathan's a good preacher, that's not good. Because Nathan is A, not a great preacher, and B, may not be here for another 50 years, what's gonna happen to that person if they're here for that? But if they're here because they wanna be part of the body of Christ and they find the gospel compelling among gospel people, that will work. You see what I'm saying? What you win them with is what you win them to. We need to be really careful. I had similar experiences to what Bill Sherman described in a sermon a few months ago where I'll preach a sermon and I'm like, yeah, man, I was on fire. I was really feeling it and felt really good about it. And then, you know, crickets after the service and I'll have to, you know, ask my wife, hey, is that okay? And she'd be like, yeah, it went well, which is about as harsh as she gets <laughs> for my wife. And then other days I'll be like, I had no idea where I was going. I went way over time. I was lost in my notes. And, and a lady one week came up and gave me a hug and, and crying. And she said, thank you for that. I was like, wow. And, and the best thing someone could say is, you know, that, that, that service today brought me closer to the Lord. I was inspired to worship. I was inspired to love God more. He was made greater in my life. And that happens in our weakness because it's all about the spirit not about us. That's not a humble brag, that's just a reality. All Paul has with which to plant a church in the pagan cosmopolitan city of Corinth is a simple message, Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that's enough. No children's programs, no senior adult trips, no website, no screens or graphics, no choir, no musicians, no slick and polished publications, no beautiful facilities to meet in, not even a potluck lunch like we're about to enjoy. <laughs> the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her and for her life he died. Elect from every nation, yet one o'er all the earth, her charter of salvation. One Lord, one faith, one birth. One holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food. 
and to one hope she presses with every grace endued. Beautiful truth. In some ways, doing church is incredibly complicated and overwhelming, but in the most important ways, it's very simple. We are the body of Christ on earth. We gather to worship, to encourage one another through fellowship, to spur one another on to continue to meet needs in the name of Jesus. That's what we call ministry. To tell people who are lost and searching where they can find hope and healing. We call that evangelism. And to grow deeper in our journey with God. We call that discipleship. Everything we do should accomplish these things. Everything we do should be intentional in this way. Everything we do should be relational, putting people before programs. Everything we do should be missional, advancing God's kingdom on earth. So just three quick takeaways from today. First, have you really embraced the scandal of a crucified Messiah? Do you understand how countercultural this thing is that we're asked to believe at the core of our faith? Are you okay with giving your life to a God who took on flesh instead of taking over the world by force, who humbled himself and became obedient even unto death on a cross. Second, what are you chasing? What are you chasing? What do you love? What, what compels you, worldly success or spiritual vitality? As Paul put it in Galatians, who are you now trying to impress, people or God? Who do you really serve? We should be honest with ourselves before we make a mess of our lives. Finally, what really matters to our church? What should we prioritize? What should we spend our time and talent and treasure pursuing? The cross is at the center of our sanctuary, and I pray that it'll be at the center of our lives together as well. Let's pray. Lord God, we know that in this world, it seems increasingly strange, especially in a city, a city like Nashville that's an it city. People are moving here from all over the world, God. For us to say that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through you. God, it seems so strange that we would say that we can't be impressive if we're known. God, it seems so strange for us to claim things that are gonna upset people on both the right and the left because we are seeking to be biblical Christians who are faithful to you and to your word. God, I pray that you would give us courage and give us wisdom as we seek to live faithfully as your body here on earth. God, we want to be a healthy church that plays our part in your purposes for Nashville and beyond. God, in order to do that, we know that the gospel must be at the center of everything that we do. A gospel that we may have heard a million times, and yet we still are blown away by your amazing love for us. God, help us to make that a reality in our lives as we are so compelled by the truth of the gospel that everything else fades away and that all we want is to be close to you, our great God who has redeemed us in the most amazing way by sending your only son to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. God, may this week be a time of returning to you, of recommitting to you, 
of renewal, of personal holiness, of fighting against sin, of evangelism, of, of telling our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers where they can find hope, of growing deeper in our walk with you through discipleship. And God, may we experience a rich fellowship and that sweet spirit that is in this place, even as we go from here to, to eat together and play together. God, you are the high and holy God. You are so far above our feeble human might and human power and human thoughts. And God, in our greatest intellect, in our greatest days, we fall woefully short of your perfect power and wisdom. May we learn to fully submit to you as we remember that everything you do is done in love for us and for the world. Lord, we trust you, we love you, we recommit to you. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord and Savior, amen. We're gonna have a time of response now. If you've never given your life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if you've never really accepted the gospel, there's no better time to do so than right now. Maybe you've never found God's love amazing. We're gonna sing How Deep the Father's Love for Us, one of my favorite songs. I know it's one of Aaron's favorite songs too. And just let these words resonate in your soul. Maybe you want to come pray at the altar because you're dealing with something. Maybe you want to come pray with a pastor. I'll be here as well. Whatever it is you need to do during this time, uh, don't leave this place without having dealt honestly with the Lord. Let's stand and sing How Deep the Father's Love for Us.